Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This episode is going to be all about the history of mTOR and rapamycin. I found this article written in 2017 by David Sabatini titled 25 Years of mTOR, Uncovering the Link from Nutrients to Growth. It's hard to believe that almost 30 years ago, David Sabatini discovered mTOR. At that time, he was an MD-PhD student at Johns Hopkins, and he had no idea to this day that it would be such an, such an obsession for him and that mTOR would receive the recognition that it does today. In fact, when he opened up his lab at the Whitehead Institute at MIT, he was actually advised to stop working on mTOR, and he seriously considered it. But like most researchers, he ignored all the haters, and he continued to work on this project. We now appreciate that mTOR is the key to answering one of the central questions in biology, which is how do organisms regulate their growth and coordinate it with the availability of nutrients? So that's the question that he wanted to answer. All the way back in 1992, he went to go see Sol Snyder about his thesis project. Sol Snyder was his preceptor. He was his mentor. And at that time, David needed a project to work on. Sol Snyder gave him some advice that in his lab, he works on the brain. And he left that interview very unsettled because the brain was such a big topic and he was really projectless after the conversation. But what he gained from the meeting was that he really had the freedom to do whatever he wanted. And at that time, there were other researchers in the lab that he was in where he was studying, where they were studying the effects of the immunosuppressant called FK506. And they were trying to see the effect of this FK506 on neurons. And they were also at that time using a structurally related molecule, rapamycin, as a negative control. The rapamycin that they were using in their lab, they obtained from Surin Segal. Surin Segal was another researcher who purified rapamycin all the way back in 1975, and he got it from bacteria found in the soil collected on Easter Island. So Segal also had written a book called Rapamycin Bibliography, where he was able to talk about the remarkable effects of rapamycin, its antifungal, immunosuppressive, anti-cancer effects of rapamycin. And it was clear that rapamycin inhibited the proliferation of a wide variety of cells ranging from lymphocytes and cancer cells and was able to delay the G1 phase of the cell cycle in the yeast. So that's what he had found. So we can really thank Surin Segal for you know, going to Easter Island and finding this bacteria and isolating it and really coming up with rapamycin. So, it, you know, he plays a huge role in the, the founding of rapamycin and mTOR. Early insights into the mechanism of action of rapamycin came from the findings that, again, this FK506 and rapamycin inhibited different aspects of the immune cell function and also antagonized each other when given at the same time. So this suggested that Despite their structural similarity, I'm talking about FK506 and rapamycin, they have distinct targets. FK506, by the way, is tacrolimus. This is a commonly used immunosuppressant. Even to this day, we use this immunosuppressant for you know, kidney transplants and these different transplants. And the way tacrolimus works is by inhibiting this protein called calcineurin. So calcineurin is this protein, again, that is a phosphatase, meaning it removes a phosphate group. When it removes a phosphate group from T-cells, it allows for T-cell transcription activation to occur. 
Therefore, if we inhibit, inhibit calcineurin, we inhibit the dephosphorylation, and we do not get any T-cell transcription. Therefore, we do not get any immune function. So it's an immunosuppressant. That's how it works. The first thing that David Sabatini had to do at the Snyder lab was purify the target of this FKBP rapamycin. So what he did was he used radioactive-based labels, and he, and he made two versions of it, this FKBP12 and FKBP25. So there was two versions. And he was able to cross-link in a rapamycin-dependent manner, this FKBP12, and he, he was able to you know, um, co-fraction it with each other, and he named one called RAFT, which is rap, RAFT1, which is rapamycin and FKBP12, and then he named a smaller one RAFT2. So there's RAFT1 and RAFT2. He sent RAFT1 off to get sequenced by this other man named Paul Tempest. So Paul Tempest sequenced this RAFT2 molecule. Now, around the same time, a few months later, there was another man named Robert T. Abraham who also reported on the same protein, and he called it mTOR. So Abraham really coined the mTOR, and he called it mTOR because sequence analysis showed that RAFT1, the molecule that Sabatini was working on, and mTOR shares homology. It had similar kinase domains to the protein encoded by TOR1 and TOR2 genes of these yeast that were discovered earlier. So just to backtrack real quick, RAFT1 and mTOR, these proteins that were being sequenced, had similar homology homologous sequences, meaning they looked the same as these other proteins called TOR1, TOR2 that were found by other scientists. Um, their, their names are Michael Hall and George Libby. So Michael Hall and George Libby were working on TOR1 and TOR2 genes in yeast. And Hall and Libby had used genes to identify, they had used genetics to identify genes that impact the rapamycin sensitivity of yeast. And in the same paper that they wrote, Hall also reported two additional rapamycin-resistant mutants, and he called that TOR1 and TOR2. And he went on to isolate and sequence these TOR2 genes. Livy, again, this other researcher working on TOR in yeast, also discovered the same genes, but called them DRR1 and DRR2, which just stands for Dominant Rapamycin Resistance 1 and 2. That biochemical and genetic studies in distinct systems converged on clearly homologous gene products gave great confidence that mTOR slash TOR was the pharmacological relevant target of rapamycin and laid the foundation for much of the work that followed. So it was a lot of thanks to this guy, Michael Hall, and this other guy, George Livy, that along with David Sabatini really helped nail down that rap that mTOR was the tar or rapamycin was the target of mTOR. So it took all these guys to to really figure this out. Now, many labs were trying to understand its function by studying how rapamycin inhibits cell proliferation. 
very early studies into the mechanism of rapamycin toxicity in the yeast that were being studied, Canada, Canada albicans, this is a type of yeast, showed that rapamycin suppresses various metabolic processes, including protein synthesis. Subsequent work in human cells by these other scientists also showed that rapamycin inhibits the phosphorylation of the ribosomal protein S6 and the initiation of mRNA translation, mRNA translation, establishing mTOR as a central regulator of anabolic metabolism and mass accumulation at the cell level. So this is a lot of medical jargon, and it only makes sense if you understand the central dogma of really the central central dogma of biology, which is DNA to RNA to protein. We need ribosomes to make protein. And we see that mTOR inhibits the one of these ribosomal proteins called S6. So if you inhibit that, you inhibit mRNA translation. You don't get any mRNA translation, you don't make proteins. So this is how rapamycin is working. In animals, evidence connecting the target of rapamycin pathway to growth came first from genetic studies in the fruit fly, the Drosophila fruit fly. These showed that flies with the reduced detour are smaller, specifically because of reduced cell size rather than cell number. From his work, from David Sabatini's work with raft, you know, back to that protein raft and raft, uh, raft one, raft two, he knew that mTOR was in a protein complex. And so after he arrived at the Whitehead Institute, which was his lab, he focused on identifying mTOR interacting proteins. And at this, you know, he was certain that at this point, he was certain that the binding pro- par- partners of mTOR would be key to understanding its regulation and how it signals downstream. So we have to find the different binding partners of mTOR. And two of the postdocs in his lab helped him do this. So these guys' names were Do Win Kim and Das Sarbasov. They both helped identify the binding partners in mTOR. So again, these postdocs also played a role in the development of mTOR and, and rapamycin. So Do Win, one of the postdocs again, he identified the first mTOR interacting protein. He called it Raptor, R-A-P-T-O-R. And that stands for Regulator Associated Protein of mTOR. So Raptor is the defining component of what we now call mTOR complex one. The other postdoc, Das Sarbasov, he, who to this day kind of still works in his lab, identified Richter. So this Richter, R-I-C-T-O-R, Raptor inhibitor, or Raptor independent companion of mTOR, is the defining component of mTOR complex 2. So again, to back up real quick, mTOR comes in complexes, two different ones, mTOR complex 1, mTOR complex 2. Raptor is the protein associated with mTOR complex 1, and Richter is the protein associated with mTOR complex 2. So Dose went on to identify also the first substrate of mTOR, which is the AKT-PKB pathway. Uh, and this is a key effector of the insulin signaling that it is, is immediately tied to mTOR and also ties it to 
you know, glucose, homeostasis, and, and diabetes. So at this point of the story, we're really getting somewhere. We're seeing how certain nutrients and pathways are interconnected. We're seeing how insulin is activating mTOR, it's activating downstream signaling. So thanks to these two postdocs, we have identified mTOR as, a, as two different distinct complexes, and we're understanding how certain substrates act within this complex to make downstream signaling occur. So to move forward, he has this other piece in an often overlooked paper from 1995. There was this man, Alfred Meheer, who discovered that in cultured hepatocytes, so liver cells, amino acids activate SK6 kinase in a rapamycin-sensitive fashion. So basically it's showing how amino acids are also tied to mTOR. This leucine, arginine, they are key activators of mTOR signaling, and this was discovered from someone else. So slowly and slowly, it's coming together. We're seeing that mTOR is acting as this nutrient sensor, not only for insulin, but also for these amino acids. And this plays a large part into the story. These studies were tantalizing, but how mTOR complex 1 and, you know, and mTOR complex 2 senses nutrients was also a black box until work, but until work was done by this other researcher from MIT called uh, his name was Yasemin San Sankak, and he was from Turkey. He was an MIT student from Turkey. Ultimately, this guy, or this sorry, this female, she w initiated um, more work on this understanding how nutrients are sensed, and also how mTOR, the complex one pathway, is organized so that it can respond to many inputs besides nutrients like growth factors, different forms of stress. This Again, this whole MIT student was able to identify how it was able to be done. So specifically, she identified the heterodimeric RAG GTP aces as mTOR complex 1 interacting proteins that bind to it when cells are stimulated with nutrients, particularly amino acids. So she found this RAG GTPases. GTPases are just enzymes. These enzymes work with mTOR complex 1 and they bind to it and it becomes activated once it's sensed, once it senses amino acids in the cell. We had no doubt that the RAG GTPases were important, but exactly how they regulate mTOR complex 1 was a still a mystery because in vitro, they did not always stimulate its kinase activity. Now, eventually, they found the answer to this question, but he would have done so much sooner, and it would have been less of a headache if he had just, if David Sabatini had just listened to his dad. So 10 years ago, you know, when he had discovered the, the mTOR, he su his dad suggested that he determine its subcellular localization. So in, in other words, where specifically in the cell is mTOR working on? How is it working? Is it working in the nucleus? Is it working in the mitochondria? Eventually, Sabatini developed an antibody to mTOR and showed how on immunofluorescence, there were this stained cytoplasmic uh, puncti that looked like vesicles. And he had never bothered at the time to really dive deep into what exactly these vesicles were and he was sort of playing like the where's waldo 
In other words, there there were possible different locations of where mTOR was working. Now, eventually, they concluded that these puncti were the lysosomes, and that nutrient signaling through this RAG GTPases to promote the movement of mTOR complex one. This all occurred in the lysosome. This is where it was occurring. But how does this translocation impact the activity of mTOR complex one? So. It was necessary to consider the REB GTPases, which is a RAS-related GTPase that is essential for mTOR complex one activation in all models. So they looked at this REB, this RHEB GTPase. Again, GTPase is just an an enzyme, a catalytic a catalytic enzyme that is helping with mTOR. And finally, everything really began to fall into place when they found that this GTP-loaded REB directly stimulates the kinase activity of mTOR complex 1, and that REB also localizes, at least in part, to lysosomes. So this is very important here. They propose that the RAG and REB GTPases, so these catalytic enzymes, are two arms of a coincidence detector mechanism that ensures that mTOR complex 1 becomes activated only when nutrient and growth factors conditions are both appropriate. So it is very probably confusing to listen to this, but going back, let's go back to the glucose and insulin um, framework. So there was a, another researcher, Brendan Manning, he found that upon insulin withdrawal, that there is this complex in a cell, it's called TSC, it stands for tuberous sclerosis complex. It translocates to the lysosomal surface to inhibit REB. And when he discovered this, it really provided for the first time a mechanistic, mechanistic understanding of how insulin regulates this tuberous sclerosis complex and REB and also thus mTOR. So I'm going to make things very simple because there's a lot of medical jargon here. If there is no insulin present, you get activation of this tuberous sclerosis complex, TSC, I'll call it. When TSC is, TSC is activated, there is no REB GTPase activity. If there is no REB GTPase activity, there is no mTOR activity. If insulin is present, this TSC, TSC is shut off, REB GT, GTPase activity occurs, and mTOR, the switch, can go on. So this is, this is how it's working. This is the cell signaling cascade. And by the way, I'll leave this article in the episode description. He has a nice figure here showing how insulin acts on AKT, acts on TSC, acts on this GTPase, which acts on mTOR. So this is how it's working. For the first time, we're understanding the mechanism of how mTOR works, how all these complexes work, how exactly we're able to take nutrients and sense them and then activate mTOR or not. So he showed that lysosomes are the scaffolding platforms on which mTOR1 becomes activated and also an important participant in amino acid sensing. As mTOR complex 1 can sense amino acids in the lysosomal lumen, 
These discoveries gave rise to the field of lysosomal signaling, which is still you know, being studied to this day. Now, most excitingly, he finally identified what had been the holy grail pathway for him, the proteins that bind nutrients and sense their presence. After so many years of chasing these sensors, we could finally see in an anatomic detail exactly how nature had connected mTOR to nutrients. He finishes off this paper by stating, while mTOR may not regulate everything, there are enough mysteries in how it senses everything to keep us occupied for a foreseeable future. So that's the way he ends this paper. And although it's been over 30 years that mTOR has been discovered, there is still so much to know. But at least we figured out the question that he was trying to answer, which is, again, how do organisms regulate their growth and coordinate it with availability of nutrients? So I want to thank David Sabatini. I want to thank Søren Segal. I want to thank his postdocs. I want to thank his, his preceptor, Sol Snyder, for all coming together for this you know beautiful story of mTOR and rapamycin. I think if you listeners are not familiar with uh, cell signaling, I highly recommend you just check out mTOR and check out cell signaling. It's, it's very fascinating. But in some way or another, our health span, our lifespan depend on mTOR and depend on other signaling pathways, A and PK. And I feel like down the road, there's going to be a lot more research on mTOR. But for now, again, thank, thank you, David Sabatini. Thank you, these researchers, for really uncovering mTOR. And it's, again, been over 30 years that it's been discovered and still so much to learn. So... I know in this episode there was a lot of scientific and medical jargon, but I hope you learned something. I hope you enjoyed the history of mTOR and this kind of long, arduous process of discovering it. So again, thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in next week for another book that I'm going to cover.